0: Hello and welcome to Piece by Piece, the podcast where we piece together what makes a world without violence. While we don't always see it, gender-based violence is all around us. At Anova, we believe in a future without violence. But what does a future without violence look like, and how do we get there? This week's episode, kids are the boss of their own body, sort of. We all know that understanding consent is an important life skill, but teaching it to young children can be difficult. So today I'm chatting with Inova's Public Education Coordinator, Alison Pryda, to give us some concrete skills and guidance. In prepping for this episode, we heard lots of stories about how kids learned about consent, and some of them are pretty silly. Give a listen. We started telling our kiddo that her vagina was private and that nobody should touch it unless it's her mummies to clean it. One day we were changing her bum and she yells, friends, touch my vagina, just to be sassy.
1: My mom used to watch my daughter and whenever she would change her diaper, she would say, I'm wiping your bum. By about three, my daughter thought her whole diaper area was called a bum. And it took us forever to figure out that she had a UTI because she just kept saying her bum hurt.
0: My cousin went through a phase when he was four of asking everyone if they wanted to see his penis. And, like, that's great practice for when he's older, you know? No one wants to see your penis. Thanks for asking.
1: My daughter was three years old. She and I had a bit of a disagreement. I went up to uh, the bathroom, and she angrily followed me in. When I told her I wanted some privacy, she looked me up and down quite scornfully and said, I hate you, and I hate your vagina, too. My niece loves to have what she calls um, nude-dude-dude dance parties, uh,
0: which is what she calls it when she takes all of her clothes off and dances in the living room. Her mom and I had to explain to her that while I was thankful for the invite, it wasn't exactly appropriate for me to also take off all of my clothes for for the party. Uh, some conversations you expect to have and some you just really don't see coming at all. Kids say the darndest things, don't they? Now we're gonna dive into our conversation with Allison. Welcome, Allison. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why the work's important to you.
1: Um, well, I work at ANOVA along with you, so <laughs> I'm the public education coordinator. Um, but I think also the reason that I really, like, got into this work, um, first of all, was, uh, you know, through grad school, I was writing a lot and talking a lot about, um, you know, sexual violence and, um, the world being kind of a terrible place sometimes, and that was a big downer, and so I felt like, what can we do to, like, change this? Like, how can we make this better? Surely it's not just going to be this bad forever, um, and so I started volunteering, and that's kind of, like, what led me, um, into this current job, um, but I think one of the reasons that I, um, got so passionate about sexual violence in the first place was actually my experience as a survivor um, and not realizing that what I had experienced was sexual assault because even as a university student, like I didn't have a sort of fulsome understanding of what consent was and all of the nuance that went into it. And then a few years ago, I became a mom um, and I realized, this actually starts so young, um, like the, the relationships we have with our kids, like we have so many moments of interaction that involve, you know, consent and communication and boundaries and how all of that kind of plays out. Um, there are so many opportunities to be really intentional about it. And that kind of led me into a deep dive of like, okay, so professionally, I've been doing, you know, teaching consent to... Um, you know, teenagers and young adults, um, and older adults. Um, but now, like, how are we doing this with kids? Like, what does that look like? Because it's it's not sexual, right? It's a whole different kind of ball game.
0: Well, and it's funny to me. Um, so we were both off on parental leave at roughly the same time. We were both pregnant at roughly the same time, and we are we are the team of education at over pretty much. And so it was sort of interesting as we both became aware of sort of the element of parenting that we could also use to sort of further the goal of creating a world without violence. And that's what we're talking about today is that in terms of creating that future that we do want, um, we need to start pretty young. And there's actually some really, really good guidance that's going to come out of this conversation, which I'm excited about, like really tangible skills uh, around It is pretty simple and pretty complex in some ways how to make sure that kids have the ability to, when they do get to the place of being involved in sex when they're older, that they're primed and that they're ready to be doing so in a way that is sort of empowering and can navigate it um, in a really healthy way. So. Let's take a step back, though, because I just used the word sex and I use the word kids in roughly the same sentence. So when you're talking about consent and you're talking about kids, what are you actually talking about? Because presumably we're not talking about sex.
1: 100% correct. Um, we are not talking about consent when um, we're not talking about sex when it comes to um, consent with kids. Really, what we're talking about is um, we're talking about, you know, boundaries, we're talking about giving them the language and the skills to um, navigate their own boundaries and other people's boundaries in a way that works for folks, right? So it's it's really not about sex, even though those skills can be used for sex later in life. Um, but as children, it's about teaching them that you know their body belongs to them; that they get to decide what happens to it within limits. And I think we're going to dive into sort of what some of those limits are. Um, But, you know, they get to decide what happens to it. um, And other people's bodies belong to other people and they get to decide what happens to it. Um, And so that's really like at its most foundational level, it's about teaching those like boundary and communication skills along with some of the language skills around like, you know, what, what those body parts are, what do we call these things? Um, so some of those skills as well, but really foundationally it's about boundaries and communication. I really like that you
0: bring up, um, sort of what happens to their own bodies is within their choice with certain caveats and then, but also what happens to other people's bodies. And I feel like, This is just me spinning off a little bit, but I do feel like we've done a relatively good job the last few decades of sort of talking about like my body and like private parts and who should have access to touching those or not. And like, I think a lot of parents will be somewhat familiar with that rhetoric in that space. What I think is a little new is also like, we start to model to kids really young that what they do to other people's bodies is not their choice. It's other people's choice about their bodies. And I think that's an important addition to this conversation. I know even the other day, our son Remy, um, is really, really, really physically active right now age appropriate. He's too, but he just wants to like be all up over his mama, my wife, Holly, and just physically like jumping on her and just all over. And She's trying to navigate telling him at some points that she doesn't want that and that that hurts or that that sort of is not feeling good because she's touched out and just trying to get his little brain to see that connection that sometimes we don't want to be touched is hard. It's really hard at two and that's probably the earliest you can really start to think about getting them to get the empathy of that. But I can see that skill building. Like he will tell me sometimes he doesn't want to be tickled and I get that. And I model pulling back right away, but how to model that um, so that he starts to get that his actions on other people's bodies have consequences. Um, if that's an, I think a
1: relatively new addition. Yeah, for sure. This is something that we see. So I also have a two-year-old um, who is also just like a a rough and tumble kid. (laughs) Um, and we're still breastfeeding. And so that's something that we've been navigating sort of boundaries and consent around is that, you know, I'm, I'm happy to still be breastfeeding. I love it. It's a lovely cuddly time, um, that I get to spend at the end of the day when I haven't, you know, been around them all day. Um, and like twiddling um you know there are like things that I'm okay with within breastfeeding and there are things that I'm like actually I will um I will throw you across the room if you twiddle my nipples I will not actually but the urge is there twiddling um twiddling <laughs> Ooh, like a shiver goes down my spine um and so those kind of like setting nuance right of like yes this is okay. And this is not okay for me right now. Um, it's tough. Right. And yeah, they're really young. Um, but I think that very basic skill of like my body and your body um, is, is something that it needs to start then. Right. Cause that's when they're getting that concept for the first time. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes we get up in our heads around, or certainly I do anyways <laughs> around, um, you know, is this, am I, am I going overboard? Am I doing sort of the right things at the right time? Um, and something that's helpful for me to remember is that like, he's learning things one way or the other. Um, one way or the other, he's learning about his own body and other people's bodies. Right. Um, and all I have control over is what sort of I and my partner teach him about his body and other people's bodies but like bodies are being learned about the messages are happening you can't
0: control all of them but you can control the ones you're engaged in yeah yeah it's interesting um in terms of bodies like we talk about this so we work together we've done years of that together and I think pulling the threads of some of the work that we do with adults has been really interesting for me to think about with kiddos. So one of the activities we always do is, um, well, pre-pandemic days, made folks in a group sort of pair up and then sort of ask them to touch shoulders, ask them to touch sort of more increasingly um, vulnerable or um, less comfortable spaces to each other. And at any point they're invited to sit down and eventually everyone sits down usually sometimes. And then sort of having a conversation around how did you know if someone was comfortable or not uh, to sort of touch their shoulders? How did you navigate that? Did you even consciously navigate that? Anyways, a lot of what comes out of that and what we facilitate out of that is a conversation around nonverbal cues. So when do we know that someone's uncomfortable? How do we read that? And it's just so primary to what we teach toddlers in terms of empathy building that when sort of we really look to understand them non-verbally in a lot of ways, because their verbal skills are not always that advanced. And so we can understand when they're uncomfortable. We can understand when they're sad. We start naming those feelings for them. So we start giving them the skill sets for that. And I think what's the pivot too, is that we, in a consent sort of framework, we need to also start naming those things when they're happening to others for the toddler's experience. So naming, you know, when my wife is sad or she's overwhelmed and I can see Remy perceiving cues sort of her body, I will name those for her. And sort of that is all connected to consent, even though it's sort of emotional literacy that is all around the same conversation space.
1: Yeah. And one of the biggest things we can do for our kids is really that, like what you're saying, that noticing out loud. So what are you noticing? Um, and then just verbalize it for them, right? That not only helps give them the words um, that they're, they may be lacking, um, but it also helps them sort of contextualize their experience, right? Um, so you can say things like, oh, you know, mama is, I noticed mama pulled back. Maybe she doesn't want a hug right now. Um, and so you're giving them like, this is the cue I noticed. This is how I, as an adult, interpret that, mm-hmm. um, and then he now has a little more skill um, in interpreting those those cues.
0: I feel like there's been lots of conversation on sort of Insta Mom blogs and just other spaces as well around. Uh, it feels like the kids in consent conversation has really hung up on the thread of not being forced to hug grandparents, and and I think that's an important conversation space. And absolutely it is an entry into the consent conversation. What's interesting is that it is so much bigger though than that. Of course, we think that kids shouldn't have to do things to their bodies that they don't want to do, but there are limits to that. And there's also ways that we need to navigate those limits. So perhaps you can expand a little bit on what the limits are. And then we can actually circle back to the grandparent conversation. Cause I know it's a, it's a hot button hot one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, of course, when we say like, you know, kids get to decide what happens to their own bodies. um, Anyone who's ever done, like spent any time with kids knows that like, that's not true. Um, So really the exceptions for that, the times where consent is just not the top priority are issues around health, hygiene, and safety. So just time out. Yeah
0: hygiene, and safety. Let's start with health.
1: Yes. So health is around, you know, doctor's appointments, dentist visits, as the parent or caregiver, you get to decide, you know, vaccination schedules, you get to decide um, whether or not they're taking a medication in consultation with your doctor. Um, and sometimes like, I know my kid, that banana flavored medicine, which I loved as a child, um, he has very strong feelings about not swallowing it. Um, and we have to kind of navigate this space of like, it has to go down. Like you, you have to take this medication. Right. Um, and it can, it can be an icky space, right. Of like, I am holding, like this is a two person job, holding my child down and literally forcing a liquid down his throat, um, which was awful. So then we kind of get to, okay, how can we make this better? Like the boundary is he has to take this medication. How can we do this in a way that is the least traumatic for all of us? Um, and so we, we found that we can mix it in smoothies. Um, and so he would get a little, um, like a little shot glass of a smoothie with the medicine mixed in, and he was very happy to drink that. Um, so with, with these exceptions, you have to kind of think really clearly about like, okay, what actually is the boundary? And then what's flexible around it to make this the least painful for everyone? So that's health, right? Is doctors, dentists, um medicines, therapies, um, if your, your kiddo needs those kinds of things, um, are all things that caregivers have to decide. Right. Number two, hygiene. So hygiene, which is similar to health but slightly different because it's for most of us a more everyday thing than health. Um, is you know diaper changes. Um, caregivers get to decide when a diaper change happens um brushing their little teeth once they come in um baths changing their clothes all of those things around kind of staying clean are boundaries and again there's the hard line and then there's some flexible space around it so um my kid hates baths i don't know why this was just a decision that was made around a year and a half that baths were no longer a nice snuggly everyday time And they became a huge fight. Um, And so then we had to kind of think okay, so what's the boundary and where's the flexibility? Um, The boundary is you have to be clean. Like you roll around in dirt, you get paint under your fingernails, you get like stanky sometimes. Like you need to be clean we don't have to bathe every day the way we had been doing it as part of a bedtime routine. That's where the flexibility is. So like he gets bathed um, on the weekend and then through the week, just as necessary. Um, If he comes home from school and he's covered in markers, you know, Um, summertime was weird because they played outside so much. So he was dirty basically every day. So we were bathing him basically every day. But now in the wintertime, he probably only gets like two baths a week, which I feel uncomfortable with sometimes because I like to have more than that a week. (laughs) But he, you know, he, he hasn't, he's two, he hasn't gone through puberty. He doesn't have like sweaty, stinky um, issues. His diaper area gets sort of cleaned more, much more often. Um, And so it's a kind of thing around like, okay, so like, yeah, what's what's the hard line? And where's the flexibility? And if we're uncomfortable around that, is that my discomfort? That's sort of my issue? Or is that a discomfort that is indicating there's something else going on? Does that make sense? It does.
0: I have so many we're going to circle back to the, how do you do the soft part
1: of this boundary yeah. setting, but number three, don't want to lose it. Yeah. So safety, I mean, is the big one, right? So, um, kids are, uh, they're explorers. They're curious by nature. They don't have the experience to, to know when something is unsafe. Um, and they also don't have the judgment to kind of weigh the pros and cons. So things like, Holding hands while you cross the street, um, car seats, um, not smacking your friends in the face, not climbing um, onto the table beneath the TV. Um, like all of those kinds of like safety, you could get hurt, someone else could get hurt, or you could break an expensive TV. Like those kinds of things um, are all in safety. So health, hygiene, and safety. And there's some
0: amount of, of course, it's up to the parent exactly where those boundaries come in. And that's a lot based on your own values and sort of what your comforts are. Um, I know some parents, there's lots of different parenting theories out there for in terms of littles, at least, around whether we let them get hurt or whether we sort of support them in understanding what hurt might look like if they fall off a chair. However, you get to set those boundaries. You get to navigate that as a parent. Um What I think is interesting when you talk about those are sort of the hard boundaries and then you would communicate that to your person um, and sort of saying, I can't let you do this. And here's why. And I, you might name the emotion that that arises in them. looks like you're really angry because of that. Um, But let's talk about the soft, soft boundary setting. So I just think like there's so many challenges in this and this is we're, we're biased already in our conversation, of course, towards littles in terms of the parenting spectrum, because we're both parenting littles. So I think there's different ways that this would come up around teens, of course. Um, But in terms of like the soft setting, I know we've talked about it from like, when we talk about trauma informed approaches to service provisioning, we talk a lot about offering choice that when folks feel that they have the ability to make a choice, even with the boundedness of like, they kind of have to do something, but they could do it by doing X, Y, or Z there's choice in that that always feels better. And so I know in some ways that's probably one way you could help set a soft boundary. Like we're going to go outside, you have to put a coat on but you could put it on in different ways or you could put your boots on first and then your coat on if we're talking littles here again, very, very concrete examples. Um, But that is exhausting. And I just feel like we need to own and sort of hold that space for a second that there are days where, while I may know that as a parent, that health, hygiene, safety, and that, you know, I should try to offer options in terms of the snowsuit getting on, It is just not happening for me. And there is some holding down of that child that is happening. That is gross and intense. And, oh my God, we're all crying and it's happening. And I don't have anything left in me. Help me navigate all these feelings, Allison.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. Just like so much. Yes. So relatable. 100%. No one is perfect all the time. And kids actually don't need perfect parents. Um, you know, they don't need you to, pr- to practice consent perfectly 100% of the time. Um, because the thing about all relationships, relationships are built on connection. And um, sometimes connection r- ruptures, it breaks, we yell, we <laughs> force their little f- legs into that snowsuit because we are going outside. Because if we don't go outside we cannot handle them in the house. Like these things happen. Um, And (laughs) those things. So you mentioned like trauma informed practice um, and connection buffers against trauma. And so what happens when connection ruptures, when you have a moment where you're, you're disconnected from your kid, you yell, you force medicine down their little protesting throat. um, You can repair the connection You can spend some time once you've calmed down, once you've taken a hot minute and gathered yourself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Once you've calmed down, you can spend some time repairing that connection. And so what that can look like is it can look like just a straight up apology, depending on what's happened. You know, Um, mommy got so frustrated and I yelled at you and that wasn't fair. Mommy shouldn't have yelled at you in that moment. I'm really sorry for yelling. Um, that can also, depending on sort of what the moment was and how big you felt it was, um, and if it's you know past, um, and some time has happened before you've been able to kind of gather yourself, or it happened at drop off and then you've spent the day apart um, because they were at daycare all day, like depending on what's happened, you could just sort of consciously spend time just like playing with them, engaging with them, um, in a way that, you know, is fun. And that strengthens connection. Again, that can repair connections even without explicitly talking about what happened um, depending on how old your kid is and and what it is that happened. So repair, and it
0: sounds like the overall um, guidance is that we want to give them the message that their body is theirs. And that except under very particular circumstances they really get to own what happens to it and those circumstances shift over time so i wonder we've done great job at focusing on the toddlers but i wonder if you have a few examples of sort of as time progresses like when when kiddos are preteens and like early teens if there's hot topic areas where you can see modeling consent to them would look like a particular thing in a parenting context
1: yeah, so I think <laughs> I, you are putting me on the spot because I don't have a ton of experience with preteens, um, but um, I think things like screen time is a big issue across the ages, right? How much time your kid spends um, watching TV, when they get a phone, you know, what kind of the rules around, do, do you know the password? Is there a password? All of these things around sort of screens. Um that there are lots of moments in those conversations to navigate consent with older kids um where you can talk about you can like what feels right for them with something like screen time like screen time fits perhaps loosely into health perhaps loosely into safety perhaps loosely into sleep hygiene (laughs) um (laughs) But it's yeah, not lots clearly, of leaves, but yeah, 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 very loosely. But it's not clearly like this is a hard boundary that, like, right. you know, we, we have to keep. Um, it's, it's one of those things where, like, par- parents are making all kinds of different choices. Um, and so you have to figure out what's right for your family. And with an older kid, how consent plays into that is that they can be involved in that conversation as well they maybe don't get to make the final say. Um, and so you can have a conversation with them and be honest, right? Kids are smart. Like they know what's up. You can say, um, maybe, maybe this is something that happens when we all get back to the world again. Um, you know, it's been a pandemic. It's, it's been a time. We've all been on screens a lot for the past year. And, um, you know, I, um, we've been thinking as as parents, we've been thinking about whether or not all that screen time going forward is still going to sort of work for our family or whether there are other things that maybe we could spend our time doing. I was wondering what your thoughts about that are. How do you feel after sitting in front of the TV all day? Um, How does your body feel about that? How does your brain feel? Because I know for me, I, I love a good like Netflix binge. And like, you can be honest, right? Be vulnerable. I mm-hmm. love a Netflix binge. I can sit still for a very long time watching TV. <laughs> but afterwards, my brain feels like putty <laughs> and my body is like stiff and sore. Um, and so you can say those things, right? And then have your kid kind of reflect on, well, how, how do they feel? How do they feel after that much screen time? Um, and then you can use that information instead of saying like, so how much screen time do you want? Which is an option. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're like, I'm absolutely not giving my (laughs) nine-year-old, um, the ultimate choice of how much screen time they're getting, um, you can kind of say, you know, I'm, I'm really glad we had had this conversation. Um, I'm going to think about this, you know, your, your mom and I are going to think about this, Mm -hmm. um. and, and we're going to come back and continue this conversation about how we're, we're going to use screens in our house. Um, and so their input has been received, right? right? And they can feel listened to, they can feel like they had a say, um, as long as you then do actually take what they said into consideration, Um
0: I like that. So it's a conversational space. It's not just a unilateral rule, which of course at that age also, ironically at the toddler age, the instinct is to just be like, no. Um, so when it's more of a conversational space in terms of setting that boundary, that's going to help with that. There's probably ways navigating where that choice can happen for them. Um, which puts some, uh, agency back into their hands. So, yeah. Okay. Great on the spot example for the tweens, which neither of us are familiar with exactly, but that's great. So health hygiene, safety, figure out sort of what your hard limits are as a parent around those and where those are really rooted in your values and how, how you sort of see the world. And then figure out how to communicate those um, as much as possible when possible with some softness around them. And so that can be sort of being creative around, well, medicine has to happen, but it could be done in a certain different way, or it can be around enabling choice within the boundedness of what you've provided. So helpful cues. Thank you. Why does all of this matter? So why does sort of giving kids um, boundaries, giving kids a sense of agency over their own bodies, um, sort of all of those spaces of enabling choice for them around their own bodies. Najee, I'm just gonna restart that question, cut out up until here. So why does all of that matter? Um, So when we think about, we've talked about sort of trying to give kids as much choice of their own bodies to model that their bodies are theirs. Modeling also that other people's bodies are there so that you don't get to just jump on mama and incessantly in our house, for example, that at some point mama has a limit to that. Um, You're modeling that we have to limit what we do to other people's bodies and they get to choose that. You're modeling that there's sort of three things that where where those limits might end for them and sort of trying to do that in a really helpful way, giving them language around what they're feeling um, as you're putting up those boundaries. These are all kind of the nuggets we've talked about so why have we talked about this? Why are we priming kids with these particular skill sets? Um, what will that help them with when they get to whatever age?
1: An excellent question. Um, why? Because it's also just like so much more work, right? It's harder to be this way in parenting than it is to just lay down the law and say, my way or the highway, deal with it, kid. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, yeah, like, why are we putting in so much extra work um, to parenting in this particular way? Um, And also not just parenting. I want to point out, like, we're talking about it from a parent's perspective, but, like, this applies to daycare workers. This can apply to teachers. This applies to anyone who's, like, coming into contact with kids regularly. Um, And the reason is because kids live what they learn. I guess, if we want a little hashtag moment about it. Um, Kids can, can figure out sort of the way the world works based on how they're treated. And if they are constantly told what to do, if they're not given a choice, if they are forced to hug grandma, even when they don't want to, what they learn is that their bodies don't belong to them despite what our explicit messages may be, our actions are teaching them that their bodies don't belong to them, that other people's comfort is more important than their comfort, that um, bigger people can decide what happens to smaller people, um, that people with more power get to decide what happens to people with less power. And not only does that increase their risk for being victimized. um, But it also makes them more likely to turn into the kind of adults that abuse that power, that believe that they have a say over other people's bodies, um, that value other people's comfort over, you know, their own comfort. And like, that's not the kind of adults that we want in the world. And so the reason we're doing this with kids is because kids become adults and we want them to become the kind of adults who know what consent is, who value bodily autonomy, um, who want to equalize power imbalances where they see them, who, who want to speak up on behalf of themselves and others. And if as children, every time they try to speak up for themselves, they're completely shut down or they're punished for that kind of thing, they learn that their voice doesn't matter, that speaking up doesn't actually change anything. um, And they're gonna stop doing that. And then as adults and as teenagers, we want them to do that, right? We want teenagers to speak up when they're being pressured into doing something, sexual, drugs, skipping school whatever it is we want our teenagers to say no I'm not doing that that Mm -hmm. doesn't align with my values that doesn't feel good for my body that doesn't feel right for me but if they've never had any practice at that then when are they learning those skills Mm -hmm. and then the other piece of that is if they've never seen rejection get handled (laughs) gracefully um then they also don't have those skills. So sure, maybe we, we ask before hugging them and we get grandma to ask before hugging and we do those kinds of things. But then if the response to them saying no is like, oh, that makes me so sad. Then what mm-hmm. they learn is that when other people say no, you can guilt, pressure, manipulate into getting a Yes. And that is also not something that we want anyone doing.
0: You've so beautifully teased out the kind of adults we want in the world and how that's built over a a childhood, a childhood of sort of figuring out that um, power imbalances are things that we actually want to diminish. As adults. And so how do we start to do that as kiddos and, and putting choice into them? How do we give them the sense that they um, own their own bodies and can verbalize that and can verbalize their feelings and have that met gracefully, um, and can hold rejection as well. I, I think the grandparent thing we're going to circle back to, we had mentioned it earlier, you've brought it up again, we'll yeah. sort of circle back. Um, because I, I think it's, it's a hard one for a lot of people right now, and it doesn't have to be grandparents. It can be whatever it is here, but the sense of, we have a lot of social cues around how to engage with particular people. So in a, in a kiddo's life, those are often grandparents, um, or it can be mom and mom, mom and dad, what dad and dad, whatever it is. But some of those cues are things like, like, I love when Remy gives me a kiss goodbye that just warms my heart and so I will ask for it and he will usually not give it and then I will have to sort of own that and hold that and I know my gut is to sort of say oh and 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 at times I think that that actually probably is appropriate because there's ways in which um, we want to also want him to know that sort of there's pleasure to be had when you offer a kiss to folks. and that, that it's not just uh, an inconsequential thing that that actually has consequences and really positive ways of connecting to. And so we, that the emotional reaction of being sad is okay, but not in a guilt way. And so these are the lines that I get blurred in. So when you think about the grandparent anecdote here that is super overutilized is that we like our kids to hug grandparents when they see them, at least in a Western or Judeo-Christian context, we like them to run up to grandparents, also pre-pandemic, and hug their grandparents, maybe even kiss them. And a lot of kids uh, don't want to do that for all kinds of reasons. That might just be not their cup of tea today. That might be sort of their personality difference is that they don't enjoy touch in those spaces. They might not really know grandma and grandpa that well. And like hugging and kissing is a sort of, Uh, vulnerable, really intimate thing. And so um, as parents, we often encourage it. We often sort of see our own parents feeling disconnected and want to have our child connect to them through a hug and a kiss. And so we might say, do you want to do that? But it is a boggy territory because there's so many different people's feelings involved. Um, And so while I know you've laid out what is best practice can you tease it out for us why this would be sort of complicated sometimes too and where some gray space might be in helping us navigate it all
1: yeah so I think there's definitely times where cultural expectations don't align with sort of consent best practices with children And I think as parents um, and caregivers, it's important to have a really hard think about um, cultural expectations, about um, what are the consequences for not living up to those, whether or not those are expectations that you actually value, um, that you want to live up to, um, and whether or not you can buffer your kid from those consequences. Um, so an example with the hugging thing, is it that grandparents want a hug specifically, or is it that they want to feel connected, they want a greeting, um, they want to sort of know that they were they were missed, perhaps? Um, and then it's about getting creative around, so how else can we communicate that? Um, because I don't think that it's good to, to force your kid to hug people that they don't want to hug. I think that that's, um, it, it can make adults sad. Um, and I think that adults are old enough to manage their own feelings about that. Um, and they're allowed to be disappointed that their grandkid doesn't want to hug them. And that doesn't mean that their grandkid has to hug them. Um, We can hold those two truths. I think it's important to just pause for a second, just because
0: you're sort of enabling your kid, the skills to say, no, I don't want to hug. And you're validating that and you're surrounding that doesn't do away with, of course, whomever it is can feel sad about that. And how you navigate modeling that for your kid that, you know, that's going to take some work a little bit because you want to sort of own that that person might be sad, but not guilt your kid back into doing it. And all these things, but two things can exist. Um, and that, that is hard to hold sometimes, but there doesn't have to be a right way through that you can hold your kids consent space and hold that your mom who you adore is feeling really disconnected in her by that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then get creative about like, okay, so what you can what can you do then? If you don't want to right. hug, do you high five? Do you wave? Do you and grandpa come up with a super special distance handshake greeting that's like just super secret between you two and like special <laughs> and whatever, like, and make it exciting. Like there are ways to kind of like get around that. Yeah. Um, that still meet the need of grandparents wanna be greeted and grandparents wanna be connected to their grandkids. And certainly in the pandemic, that has been challenging. My kid, he's two, right? He doesn't wanna sit on video calls. He does not care at all about video calls. And my parents miss him, right? I mean, and they wanna see him and they wanna hear his language developing and all of those things. And he's just off playing with his trucks does not care that grandma's on the phone yeah. and sometimes when he's annoyed that I'm on the phone he'll walk over to the phone and say bye-bye <laughs> um which is adorable and sassy and also you know mommy gets to decide when when what I'm done with my phone call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so all of those things can be true at once yeah um, but I think oh going back to like the question which was how do you manage those kind of cultural expectations um i think that as kids get older you can have more honest conversations with them about some of those cultural expectations um you can problem solve with your kid about how to figure out the need right um and maybe you're oh, so so my brother hates being touched um and, um, so growing up, this was always a thing that, you know, people would want to say like, hello and goodbye with hugs. And he would just, I mean, become just so tense and sort of just stand there very awkwardly and, um, sometimes kind of grimace a little bit. <laughs> um, and, That made other people sad, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But my parents sort of decided like, you know what, like this isn't worth it for him to have to feel like he just has to stand there and take this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they really encouraged him to say like, no, thank you, to kind of back up if people came at him with open arms, um, to back up, to put his hand out for a handshake. Um, So they kind of encouraged those other skills. Um, And then something that... They taught him as he as he got older sort of preteen, is that like when it was sort of time to say goodbye he started um just saying like all right like it was great to see you um bye folks like i'm just gonna um run up to the bathroom and then he would just stay there while all the hallway commotion was happening <laughs> and then there was no hugging and no hurt feelings because he said goodbye went to the bathroom in air quotes <laughs> um <laughs> And like so avoid the whole thing. So like there are ways yeah. that you could be creative around this and I be, and be that. honest, I think is the other thing as kids get older, be honest about it. Right. That like, mm-hmm. this is sort of the expectation and like, maybe it's not a fair expectation. Um, and like, how can we problem solve this together?
0: It's interesting. Cause we sort of circling full circle, <laughs> circling full circle. Good job, Annalise. Um, back to teens. We do want teens to have the ability to sort of say no or, or yes, but many of us are perhaps less comfortable with the yes end of this, but definitely no to, um, being pressured into sex or being pressured into, um, using drugs in particular ways or whatever that may be. And we do a lot of work with teens around sort of being reflective of the cultural practices that they are operating under. So, um, Like, when do you sort of make yourself public in your relationship on social media? What does that look like? Does that come before or after you've been physical with them in whatever capacity? Does that come before or after you've sort of engaged with your parents around speaking about this new partner of yours? And they have these sequences in their mind of what this looks like. Those are cultural cues. And what if... Kid O doesn't want to do it in that order. That doesn't feel right to them. We need to be talking about it for them to know this and own this. And you can start to have those conversations much younger, but if you have teens, you can also have those conversations right now with those teens around sort of what is the sequence of this and why, why are you feeling that you should do this over this? Okay, cool. Yep. But you don't have to. And so digging into where the messages are coming from that whatever the sort of thing has to happen to their body in particular ways and giving them a little bit of self-reflection space on that. I want to be able to touch upon, um, sort of a heavier part of this conversation, which is that we've talked a lot about enabling choice, enabling bodily autonomy, sort of within the boundedness of health safety and hygiene. There we go. Um, but that, uh, What happens if they are, if those boundaries are crossed really significantly? So what happens if a kid, a little, little, or an older little um, has an experience of being uh, sexually violated in some capacity and hurt? How do we know that that's happened? And what do we do when we find out that it has happened? So this next little bit will probably be a bit heavy. If that doesn't feel right for you, you can definitely stop the podcast here and just stay on the sort of positive lighter end of trying to enable choice and safety. Um, But I think we do need to own uh, sort of looking at what are the signs that we could look for in kids that might have been uh, sexually hurt and what are the tools that we have at our sort of disposal to help them. So let's start with the first, what are some of the signs?
1: Yeah. So um, just before we jump in sort of more explicitly to that, I just wanted to sort of honor that like kids have instincts. And so, yeah, sometimes they don't want to hug just because they don't want to hug. But if they consistently sort of don't like someone, don't feel comfortable around them it's important for them to be taught that they can listen to that. And maybe it's, you know, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a sexual thing. Maybe it's just a vibe that they get from that person. Um, Maybe it's that that person talks really loudly. Like it's not necessarily that that person is an abuser, Um, but by teaching them to kind of listen to those instincts, um, it helps when abusers do, if abusers do kind of show up on the scene, um, because what we know is that most abusers for children are people already known to them. They're people in their families, extended families, um, in their communities, you know, at their, um, at their church, at their school. Um, but we can just sort of honor that, like, sometimes they don't want to hug people. Sometimes they don't want to be around people. Um, and if we make space for that, that can help be protective against abuse um, because they they already feel comfortable kind of saying no right
0: and maybe we could that's incredibly helpful as a link around again why we want to build the skill sets we've talked about up until now Um, and before we dive into um, and we won't spend that much time but sort of the list of things to look for um, I do think it's important to also know sort of um, that this is while not an experience everyone will go through um, and and not meant to scare parents as we sort of talk about it. It is a relatively common experience though in some ways, statistically. I don't know if you had any stats to sort of provide around this, Allison.
1: I do not. That would have been a good thing to prep. Um, I don't have any stats off the top of my head. Um, I I know the adult stats, but I, I don't know.
0: So Najee, we'll just cut out when I sort of cut her in on this. Um, and so going back, uh, that was a really helpful link to pull through Allison, around why we want to teach the skills that we have and um, to sort of offer some protective factors. We do know that while it doesn't happen to all kids, it does happen to a minority of kids and relatively consistently, it is an experience that's happening in London. It is an experience that has sort of maintained itself over time. Uh, so, knowing that without being sort of afraid of it is why we're going to want to be aware of what are some of the things to look for. So let's rhyme off some of those signs around what are things to look for.
1: Yeah, so it does depend a bit on age. Um, there are, you know, different signs in, in um, young, young children and, and preteens and teenagers. Um, but big behavior changes, not necessarily a sign of sexual abuse, but a sign that something is going on. Um, consistently, not wanting to be around a particular person, again, not necessarily sexual, but indicate something else. Um, for older children, a return to um, bedwetting um, is, a, is a big flag for um, potentially sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, for uh, um, children of sort of all ages, what we want to think about as like problematic Um, sexual behaviors in children and I really want to buffer this a lot because not all childhood sexual behavior is problematic. Um, It perhaps makes us feel uncomfortable um, but there are lots of really typical developmentally healthy appropriate ways that children engage in what as adults we think of as sexual behavior. that don't necessarily indicate abuse, don't indicate anything other than they are developmentally typical. Um, And so things like, you know, being curious about their own and other people's body parts, um, playing games like, you know, doctor, I'll show you mine, you show me yours, Um, rubbing or touching um, their own genitals, um saying kind of grown-up words I've grown up in air quotes which you can't see um, <laughs> but you know if, if they might sort of say they might come home from school and say you know like oh yeah those two people were fucking um and we're kind of like ah um <laughs> right if they don't have much more context around it than just what they said then None of those things are sort of outside the realm of sort of normal things, right? They heard someone say it. They don't actually know what's going on.
0: Right. Or them touching themselves. You mentioned another normal thing, them sort of being curious about other people's genitals and body parts sort of in a curiosity space. Those are all normal. And we could probably do a whole other conversation about this because right now I'm like having to practice normalizing my toddler, really engaging in his own sort of development in his own discovery of his body and enjoyment of it and not projecting any of my crap. That's been, that's a whole other lesson in its own sort of
1: podcast,
0: but we just preface by saying all of that is normal. And here's what is not perhaps normal.
1: Yeah. So um, kids acting out sexual positions, um, kids um, playing those games, but where there's an element of sort of coercion or pressure or force um Playing um, those kinds of sexual games with kids who are um, like a lot younger, than, like more than two years younger than them. Um, or pl- playing any of those like whether it's sort of doctor or whether that's like, you know, uh, being interested in their genitals, like if there's a, an age gap of more than two years um, as the older child, like that would be that would be a bit atypical. Um, hmm. And then sexual behavior also directed towards adults. So it's typical to be for those things to be kind of directed towards same age group friends, peers, peers like that, playing doctor and those kinds of things. Um, but if it's a lot younger, more than two years younger, or um, towards like adults and caregivers, um, then that would indicate that that something else is going on. Um, so so those are all kind of examples of um, child sexual behavior that that should cause you to ask more questions um, that could just prompt some more discovery around what else is going on. Um, And then the other thing that I wanna mention is that as adults, if you experience childhood sexual abuse um, yourself, sometimes that can make you really prone to um, sort of seeing it everywhere um, and being hypervigilant or not seeing it at all because those cues were just sort of normalized for you and you don't realize that um, things that might seem unrelated are actually perhaps related. Um, And so if you yourself have that experience, it's just important to um, be really reflective if you're seeing signs um, or if you're not seeing signs, um, just to be more reflective. And it can really help this is for all parents and caregivers to have a sounding board, right? Have, whether that's another parent, whether that's a therapist, I mean, therapists are great in general. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, But have a sounding board of someone else where you're like, Hey, this is going on. It doesn't seem normal to me. Right. Um, And someone with a bit more experience in childhood development can tell you like, no, that's actually super typical or like, Hmm. Yes, I too am curious about that. Um, so if you're if you're in a situation where you're just wondering about these things, you know the bedwetting has returned, um, or has started perhaps for the first time, and you're like, that indicates something is going on, but you don't necessarily know what. Taking um, your kids to therapy if if you can afford it or have access to it, um, yourself. Um, talking to their sort of other caregivers, whether that's a teacher or daycare worker about what else might be going on. So you just want to be gathering information. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're just sort of seeing signs, um, if you know that a child has um, experienced abuse or have strong suspicions about it, Um, so not just sort of like my kid, you know, started wetting the bed again, or, um, I saw them acting out sexual positions, but like nothing else seems off. Um, then you wanted to kind of do a discovery phase, but if you're like, no, like a number of these things are actually ringing true, you know, there's been a behavior shift. Um, they're, they're more moody or withdrawn. They're having angry outbursts, um, they're not seeing their friends, they're not interested in playing things that they used to play, um, they, they're avoiding you know, a particular person. If, if there are all those kinds of things going on um, and you're having those suspicions, then all adults have a duty to report that to their local children's aid society. Um, and so even if you don't 100% know, if you just suspect it, Um, you have a duty to report. And if you do know, like if a child comes out and tells you, um, then you have a duty to report that. So that is a call not to police, but to um, children's aid, um, whatever your local society is, and they will kind of guide you through next steps for that.
0: That's heavy. Um, It's also frankly, an introduction into it. And so I think it's important because at least it'll put some knowledge into our minds. But I think um, if any of this is sort of opening new questions for you, I think that's a really good prompt to go and sort of seek out some more information. So we are a source of some information for sure at ANOVA. So reach out to us, but there's lots. And I know this podcast will sort of reach beyond the bounds of where ANOVA is located. So um, thinking about, is there a children's mental health space or a helpline that you can call to sort of just walk through some of those thoughts? Um, Definitely do some more discovering and uh, hopefully some of these are at least building a bit of a toolkit for you around new questions and new thoughts to be asking around kiddos and experiencing abuse and what to look for and what your next steps might be. So thanks for walking us through that heavier spot, Allison. Um, speaking of resources and where to go next, I know that we uh, have something actually available though for all of you folks, and it is on our website. So Alison, you want to talk a little bit about what I'm hinting at?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we have created um, a caregiver's guide to kind of the ABCs of consent Um, and so in that guide we talk about the ABCs as being anatomy boundaries and communication Um, so kind of the things that I've been talking about this whole time um, and it really gives you kind of an introduction and a guide to how can you start bringing these things into life in the early years. So this guide is, is really aimed at sort of under sixes. Um, although I think that there's absolutely, you know, relevant stuff for for older kids, but it's it's mostly aimed at, that, at that, those young children. Um, for any caregivers, so whether that's um, parents, daycare workers, teachers, um, to kind of help bring some awareness to what are all the various kind of components um, and then provide some like skills and tools for really enacting that so um, the things that we've been talking about around like modeling consent Um, you know, creating choice and offering choice, um, but also things around like, how do we teach uh, body safety? Like, what are some of the skills that we can teach that will help protect our children um, against abuse or give them the resources to kind of know that, okay, this is an unsafe situation um, and to come and kind of tell an adult. What are some of that information that we need to be explicitly teaching children And then what are some of the ways that we can perhaps adjust or shift our behavior, our language, so that our explicit teachings are also lining up with the implicit messages that we're sending. Um, So really making sure that those things line up, because sometimes we're really good about um, the, the obvious things, but then we kind of undermine ourselves with some of our behaviors, so getting folks to kind of think through and and really get the tools to, to get those things aligned and on the same page, so that we're giving consistent messages about consent um, through the lens of teaching um, young kids about anatomy, boundaries, and communication. The ABCs.
0: So go check it out. AnovaFuture.org. Uh, you'll give it. A, you'll get it on there. Um, And really, I feel like it's just the most beautiful follow-up to this conversation. So we've sort of dissected. Uh, How do we support kiddos and kids in sort of learning consent in all the implicit ways more than the explicit ways and sort of enabling those skill sets? We had a little bit of a chat around um, why that's super important and sort of what protective factors it has around sexual abuse in particular and how to notice if sexual abuse is happening and kind of just gently delved into that really briefly. Okay. This has been a lot. Um, I think it's been great. I know I've learned a lot, even as sort of engaged in the topic as I was prior to this. I think that it's constantly making me think about my own parenting, but always in a good way, folks, like this is never meant to judge where you're at. This is meant to sort of invite you into sort of maybe something even a little bit more, a little bit new, never to judge what you've sort of been at. So Allison. If you had to leave folks with three big takeaways out of all of the amazing content you've provided,
1: uh, what would it be? Um, oh, my goodness. So I think that I would want folks to reflect more on um, why they do certain things. So really reflect on your values and think about the why. Um in order to kind of best enable you to figure out what your hard boundaries are and what your soft boundaries are so I guess point two is remembering hard boundaries and soft boundaries those exceptions to consent are um, health hygiene and safety but a lot of other stuff is flexible um, so we're remembering to kind of be flexible which can be difficult because we are busy um, and then I think the third thing is really um, to remember that not only do kids become adults, and so there we need to have some long-term um, goals around what kind of adults do we want our kids to become, but also that kids are already their own people, and um, you know this kind of this way of parenting and engaging with kids, yes, it is more work. I think that we've not only hinted at that, but like a hundred percent it's more work to do this. And I think it's so, so worth it Um, because kids are already here with us. We're already in relationship with them. So not only do we want them to become like awesome, skilled adults, but we also want to really enable their already awesome, delightful, unique personalities to really show through the best that they can. Um, And that happens when kids feel, you know, safe, seen and secure when kids feel connected. And so this consent conversation is not just about preparing them for later, but it's really about, um, you know, creating that sort of best relationship and that best life for them right now in the moment that they're at. Safe, seen and secure. Beautiful. That is not mine. I know. meant that, <laughs> um, but, but you used it, it beautifully. So thanks. I use it. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Um, well, thanks for a wonderful chat, and folks, make sure that you follow us and subscribe on Google Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. Uh, you'll find Piece by Piece on all those platforms. We'll see you next time. Piece by Piece is a production of ANOVA, a future without violence. ANOVA is on social media, and you can learn more about piece by piece and in ANOVA at www.anovafuture.org. A reminder that if you need to talk, please call our 24-hour crisis and support line at 1-800-265-1576. Our sexual assault counselors are available for virtual appointments, and our shelters are open. We're here for you. A special thank you to Najee Naim Zada for technical production, Emma Richard for visual content creation, And music for this podcast is from the album Sweet and Joyful by Crowander, the track Humming. Music accessed, downloaded and used under Creative Commons license via freemusicarchive.org. See you next time.